Welcome to the 20th episode of the Film Illiterates Podcast, your home for uninformed, unfiltered, ill-advised movie talk. I'm the Knuckles with all the chuckles, Joe Campbell, and today joining me is the one who's ready to do Pennywise's dirty work, Nathan Stone. That is right. How's everyone doing tonight? I don't want to know what that means. Do Pennywise's dirty work? You you wrote that, Nate. I'm just going for the record. You, you wrote that intro. Wow, you're some friend. Just throwing me under the bus. <laughs> I will do that all day long. Why don't you just stab me right now, man? Right in the chest through the shower curtain. Exactly. We all float down here. Wait, I, wait, I gotta do the voice. We all float down here. You'll float too. Back in 2017, the strange and terrifying world of Stephen King. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry for the voice. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, uh, you should. That was really bad. Uh, back in 2017, the strange and terrifying world of Stephen King was brought back to life when Andy Muschietti brought everyone's favorite demonic clown, Pennywise, again to the big screen in It. Now, two years later, we are plunged back into the town of Derry with the losers, all grown up as they must face their fears and put the terrifying clown to rest for good in It, Chapter 2. So, we had the chance to finally catch up on the movie in theaters, and we're here to discuss our thoughts on It. Get it? It's the movie. It's called It. Does It hold up to the first movie? Was the first movie any good to begin with? And how do the two movies compare? Is this the culmination of the Stephen King renaissance we've been seeing recently? And is this the beginning of something bigger for future Stephen King movies after this? As well, uh, who knows? We'll have to wait. And Tune see. in next time, the next episode of our podcast, because we ain't talking about it here. Yeah, <laughs> just wow. No, we're not. You're, you're really selling us on this right now, Joe. Listen to it. There are plenty of other better podcasts to be listening to. Uh, Why you're listening yeah, to this one? I, I, no, I mean, we. I think the problem, with Joe, is that you have not had your beer yet. I I got a cold one right here for you. So go ahead and crack that open right now. There we go. There we go. Just just what I needed. Well, before we get into all of that, all that Stephen King it talk, uh, let's talk about what we've been watching on our own recently. So I think I'll kick things off. (laughs) Why don't you do it? Yes. Start this off, Joe. So I'm going to – so there was a a clip that made the rounds on the internet recently from uh, uh, – it's a Nicolas Cage cameo in a movie called Never on Tuesday. Uh, Nate, have you heard of this movie before? Um, I have not. And I just watched the clip just a few minutes ago. <laughs> Joe just shared it with me. And I don't know, Joe, should we, for those who have not watched it, should we include the link to this video? Yeah, ab- um, absolutely. So, so it's a one minute cameo from Nicolas Cage in a movie called Never on Tuesday. And it's the most wonderful thing ever in any movie in the history of film. How you doing? Is anybody hurt? No, everybody's fine. Did I get somebody a lift? No, man, that's all right. Uh, got everything under control. <laughs> so, for those who don't know, this 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 clip from this movie. This movie is from 1989. And in the clip that's been making the rounds on, on the, the Twitter sphere, Nicolas Cage drives up on some open road out in the middle of nowhere. 
to ask a uh, a couple of guys in this gal who their their cars have broken down and he comes up to ask them if they need help but he doesn't like he has this big prosthetic nose he's in this red jacket he's talking in this really breathy voice like are you okay it's and this- he just gives the greatest <laughs> nicholas cage laugh as well and for no damn reason it's beautiful Anyway, I, I I needed to look this movie up though and and seek it out because I I had to watch the whole thing. His his Nicholas Cage's performance in the movie is only thirty seconds long, so I found the movie, <laughs> found a VHS copy of it, and watched it. And I'm just telling you, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Really, that his nose is the tip of the iceberg. His literally. nose, his giant prosthetic nose, is the tip of the tip of this iceberg. <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried shows up at one point as a toothbrush salesman. <laughs> what um charlie sheen is a highway robber he shows up uh holds one of the guys at knife point with an extended robbery sequence and then to cap it all off emilio estevez and carrie ellis show up as country tow truck drivers in the at, at the end of the movie it's it's pretty wonderfully weird i mean honestly it just from the looks of it i mean only just nicholas cage's part just makes me go like I, i'm just trying to figure out why they, they felt the need to put a prosthetic nose on him especially one that big well i i, I have a half answer to that okay uh nicholas cage was asked to be in the movie i think because he was a friend of someone involved in the movie and he basically said yes i'll do it if i can do whatever i want and so Nicolas Cage chose to put on this giant prosthetic nose, do the the voice, all this strange stuff. What you see and what you see him doing is all Nicolas Cage's just choice just to, because he wanted to. Oh my gosh. Literally, that is some kind of a character of his own invention that we just see on the screen. As far as kind of late 80s, early 90s weirdness, the movie's almost worth looking up because it it's such a strange movie and it's almost on like a kind of a so bad it's good level. And it's got these it's got these nuggets throughout it, but the movie isn't very good, like at all. No, I mean I'm I'm looking at the the director's uh, other filmography. He's done other stuff like Detroit Rock City, as well as the last movie star. And so I mean, not necessarily all like gems or anything like that, but it's yeah. He's got a place. He's got yeah, and, a place. And, 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 and since this clip of Nicolas Cage came out, the director's come out and talked a little bit more about the making of the movie. And I guess it was his first film and it didn't turn out the way he quite hoped it would. And he doesn't like to talk about it that much these days. But he also said that like, yeah, more, more clips from this movie should come out because, it, because there's a lot of strange things in this movie. Anyway, that's a um, uh, mild curiosity recommendation for Never on Tuesday. Again, it's not a good movie. But it's, it's kind of entertaining. Uh, another thing I'm going to talk about briefly, uh, I've been kind of going on a bit of a King Kong binge recently, and I'm no, not quite sure why. Really? Oh, it could have been the Godzilla movie, uh, the new one that, that just that, came that, out. That, that might have something to do with it. So I rented King Kong Lives from Scarecrow Video recently, and which is King Kong Lives is a 1986 movie. Uh, it's a sequel to the, I believe it's the 1976 movie. Right. So King Kong lives. Uh, it's uh, the synopsis says Kong falls from the twin towers and he appears to be alive. Uh, in the King Kong remake in the 70s, he climbed the twin towers instead of the Empire State's building. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, his heart is failing, so it's replaced with an artificial one. All is well until he senses that there's a female Kong somewhere out there and escapes, wrecking havoc. So. I've gone in this King Kong binge because I watched, I rewatched the 1976 King Kong also. I didn't like it very much. And I've just kind of been going back and 
have been watching a lot of other Kong movies. So I watched King Kong Lives. I watched the original King Kong. King Kong Lives starts off like it's going to be some wonderful schlocky B movie. So King Kong falls from the Twin Towers at the end of the last movie. But in this one, you find out, no, he didn't actually die. He was just in a coma. And they've been keeping him in some giant warehouse for the last 10 years, trying to keep him alive. Just like on a humongous like pool of ice or just humongous like freezer in itself. Wait, 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 yeah, he's just been kept in there like it's like a giant hospital basically for him. And they've built him an enormous artificial heart, like a robot heart. And they need to find a female King Kong so they can do a blood transfusion, so they can do an open heart surgery. And there's this wonderful scene early on where Linda, Linda Hamilton is performing open heart surgery on King Kong with a giant electronic pizza cutter, basically, with blood splattering everywhere, and they're lowering this giant thing into his chest. It's crazy. And, it's, and, it, and I was thinking, like, like, we don't need a sequel to King Kong any of the king kongs but if we are i ha- if we are i really want it to be something crazy and weird and schlocky like this which is entertaining you know go all in on the weirdness i mean let me ask you how big was this pizza cutter because it, like 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 this thing she's holding it, it's basically like comically oversized surgical tools uh so she's holding this thing and it's probably about as big as oh i don't know like a snow shovel <laughs> maybe a little bit bigger than that and she's and holding this thing and there's other people like holding giant yeah, you know, uh, scalpels and and uh, tweezers just to hold everything open. It's 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 pretty silly, and and I, and I dug it. Oh, I see what you did there. Uh-huh. I see what you did there. Uh, I mean, I'm just surprised that something like that would still be able to cut through Kong because he has that's a tough that's one tough monkey, you know. But it, but anyway, I, I was looking forward to it from that scene on, and the rest of the movie let me down so so badly because most of the movie so. Kong escapes with Lady Kong, uh-huh. and most of the movie is them just kind of hanging out in mm-hmm. the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Linda Hamilton falls in love with another dude as they go off trying to find uh, Kong and, and Lady Kong. And the movie it, gets the sidetracked. That, the movie gets side distracted. Like it gets oh. very boring very quickly, and it's repetitive. Some of the effects are pretty great. A lot of the movie. It feels like a uh, a Godzilla movie, like one of the old seventies Godzilla movies. It's like King Kong walking around in one of these big, uh, one of those old Godzilla movies. So the effects look great, mm-hmm. but they don't really do a whole lot with it. It's almost like you know, you know, one of those one of those Showa era Godzilla movies mixed with the first ten minutes of the Star Wars holiday special, where it's just uh, Wookiees talking with no subtitles, mm-hmm. and you have like these two Kongs talking and having disputes. With no subtitles for extended periods of time. It's kind of like it's, the lost footage of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey or something like that. <laughs> yeah, so it's semi-entertaining, but not quite all the way there. And then it, it, it ends in a great action sequence and, uh, you know, you know the, a baby Kong and all this other other stuff and lots of explosions. Wait, wow, they got into a, having a baby Kong within just a movie? Yeah, yeah. The movie spans months. Oh, okay, okay. Because I was yeah. like, in two hours, they've had a baby. That's no, yeah. So the movie is it's got nuggets of entertaining little bits here and there, but as a movie as a whole, it just can't sustain itself. So I, that's a not a recommendation for King Kong Lives, except for if you want to see open heart surgery done on Kong. That's that's as Joe says, that's just entertaining. Just 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 look up that 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 scene on uh, online. I'm sure sure it's up there somewhere. And then finally, I'm going to talk about uh, briefly here, Van Nuys Boulevard from 1979, a 
A small town kid hears about the wild nights of cruising the boulevard in Van Nuys, California. He drives out there to check it out and gets involved with drag racers, topless dancers, and bikers. Hmm, that sounds fun. It's it's sleazy American graffiti is what it is. I was actually just watching the trailer. It does kind of give off that vibe of being the sleazy version of American graffiti. Yeah, it's just, it's just teens hanging out, hooking up. Driving fast cars over uh, the course of a couple of days in California. It's fairly entertaining. Um, I mean, have you ever wanted to watch a teen couple, uh, Lady and the Tramp, a hamburger? That happens in this movie. <laughs> really? How do you do the hamburger with the hot dog, I can imagine, but a hamburger? No. Oh, they make it work. That's a weird, weirdest sex scene. I don't know. The movie is... <laughs> For the a a drag strip hangout movie, uh, it's silly. I don't know. I'm really having having trouble finding anything really redemptive about it. It's got some so bad as good kind of moments. The movie isn't really worth watching as a whole. But it, I mean, I mean, it basically is sleazy American graffiti. There's not really a whole lot more to it. I mean, there is a scene, I guess, where they have a bunch of hammers and mallets, and they're just like wrecking cars at a gas station. Oh, that was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two two guys get into a beef with each other and just start smashing their each other's cars up. I know, but it's just like the way they're doing it. It's like they get really into it first, and then as they get tired out, it's just like their movements come a lot more sluggish, a lot lethargic. Like, eh. And they're just like breaking glass. I'll be honest. The main reason I watched this was because I love Joe Dante's Hollywood Boulevard. And I saw that there was a movie called Van Nuys Boulevard. And I thought, oh, I wonder if it's related at all. No. I mean, there's so a lot of... A, yeah. Oh, I just actually just watched the hamburger shot. That looks terrible. Yep. There you go. There's a lot of random shots of animals as well, I'm noticing. Just they got like dogs and gorillas and they're just like, oh, yeah, let's film them oh, but then the movie. movie wasn't there i i don't even remember that anyway that's a a non-recommendation for van Nuys boulevard except for if you're into some like some obscure b-movie weirdness mm -hmm. cool all right is that it for you today that's it for me so nate what have you what have you been up to uh not too much since we last talked uh, as i mentioned kind of working through netflix right now um I'm really into the show right now, currently, uh, BoJack Horseman. Joe, have you heard about this show? I have. I think I've seen an episode or two back when it first came out, but I haven't really gotten into the show. I mean, the, probably the best way I could describe it is like if you take the, the premise of the show, Entourage, but you set it in like an adult swim universe where there's, you know, anthropomorphic animals with humans in the land of Hollywood. And yes, I said Hollywood because someone stole the D from Hollywood, and so everyone just calls it Hollywood now. And it just follows the one horse named Bojack Horseman who used to be on like a sitcom show, um, but has been kind of like a washed up actor who just drinks a lot, has sex a lot, takes a lot of drugs, just hates everybody. And he's still kind of like trying to, you know, find his last hurrah or, you know, something to kind of give himself some redemption or meaning in life, but nothing is fulfilling him. And it's kind of just him and his misadventures with his friends and pretty much a, a bunch of other like animals and colorful characters. And I don't know. There's something about this show. I guess when I was watching it, it's not necessarily like laugh over funny, like haha, but there's just some very witty like wordplay, a lot of like funny conversational and a lot of good situational comedy. But I think the best stuff I like from it is just how um, deep it kind of gets. Like it, it's there are times when it gets pretty real on the show. Like you keep forgetting, like okay, this is a cartoon, this is an animated adult series. And we're delving into things like happiness and depression. Um, but I don't know. I, I thoroughly liked it. I have a question. Mm -hmm. what, why are they animal people 
I mean, this this doesn't seem like the sort of story that needs to have anthropomorphic animal people with humans walking around. Why? Why? I mean, I, I like I said, I guess when I first one thing that kind of drew me about it is that there's a very Adult Swim esque kind of appeal to it for what the show kind of deals with, the heavy topics it deals with. Um, I think people wouldn't have embraced it as much if it was actual live action or if it was all set as animals. I think there's a lot that can be taken from like Princess Caroline being a cat and she's an agent who has to, uh, you know, fight tooth and nail to get what she wants. There's another character whose name's Mr. Peanut Butter, but he's kind of like, you know, the very optimistic, like Chad actor who, you know, just is full of life and he's just so positive, but he's an idiot. I think there's just something charming about it that I kind of find enduring and really the writing is actually very smart. If you kind of like tried to subtract like that whole idea of like, okay, it's animals and people existing. The writing is actually surprisingly very good. All righty, we'll have to go go back and uh, check it out from the beginning. Yeah, I, I'd say have a couple of beers because it gets kind of heavy at times. <laughs> oh, J.K. Simmons is in it. Uh, actually, Will Hartnett's in it. He plays the, the lead actor. So, um, yeah, he's great in it. Nice. Um, the last thing I'll talk about is um, I've been kind of just listening to a lot of podcasts. I've just caught up with the recent one I listened to, Film Spotting. And right now they're kind of doing a thing where they're going through all of 1999 and looking at the movies that kind of stood out from that year. And there's a lot. There's like, you know, there's The Matrix, there's Being John Malkovich, uh, there's Sixth Sense. And they've been tackling each of these movies and seeing like, what kind of conversations they were starting. And the one I was listening to recently was on Stanley Kubrick's uh, last movie that he did, Eyes Wide Shut. Joe, you've obviously seen this movie since Stanley Kubrick is your favorite director. He's he, he's up there. He's one of my favorite directors, and uh, I've seen all of his movies. Mm-hmm. This one in particular, um, not necessarily your favorite from last time we talked about I, it. I don't know if I would say I dislike Eyes Wide Shut. I'm certainly not a fan of it, though. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's... I will admit, I couldn't really sit through this movie the first time or even the second time I watch it because it's it's very, very slow. It really drags. And uh, there's also just a lot of uncomfortable stuff it's dealing with. So if anyone's not familiar with the movie, it's basically it stars Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman as a couple who are kind of like the relationships on the rocks. Uh, they're married, obviously, but they have a child. Um, and then they start delving into kind of each other's sexual fantasies and, you know, this question of fidelity to each other. And when Tom Cruise kind of finds out that his wife was thinking about leaving him and cheating him with this naval officer, he decides to go on his own, you know, quest to, you know, be sexually fulfilled. And it delves into this very cynical and dark world of just lives and people's uh, fantasies and obsessions and what it really means to remain loyal to your spouse. And uh, the movies, it gets very uncomfortable. I think as these guys were talking about in the podcast, it goes to places, I think at the time when the movie first came out that I think a lot of people just were not ready for. Like probably today's standards, you probably watch the movie, maybe for those who, who've grown up on HBO and Netflix and be like, meh. but you know, thinking about 1999 and just the time in the environment, it's it's kind of pretty controversial for a lot of things and a lot of reasons. I feel like the movie when I saw it, because I, I saw it in college and I feel like whatever themes it was touching on just weren't things that I was interested in or really was very, very aware of back at the time. So I, I would be curious to rewatch it now and see if 
I get anything more out of it today. But back then it was just kind of like, oh, it was Stanley Kubrick's last movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's well shot. You know, it's got good performances, but I didn't really quote unquote get it, you know? Yeah, I think the one thing I kind of always just took away from this movie is that I, I for anyone who doesn't know, when Tom Cruise and Nicole Kim were together, this was the last movie they did. And immediately they kind of separated from it. So a lot of kind of what you see unfold on the screen, it feels uncomfortable. It feels a little too real at times. So also fun fact as well, this is the movie that had the longest shooting period for just any film production. I think it was like a total of 400 days it took to shoot principal photography. I'd forgotten about that. I had heard that. It's been a while though. Yeah. Like they started like production back in, 1996 and then it didn't wrap until like 1998 and i forget the reason why it took so long it could be because if anyone knows stanley kubrick he takes his time with movies he goes on forever with shots and uh yeah just a he's 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 definitely good at what he does but he's one of those directors who will not settle for anything but perfection or for what he wants to go for is like his final vision so yeah um I don't know, just listening to the podcast and these two guys who are talking about it, it makes me want to tr- probably try to see if I can muster through it again and watch it all the way through, but I don't know. I'll, I'll have to see. Uh, you got anything else for us? Nah, that is it. So let's let's dive into what we're really here to talk about, which is it. Something happens to you when you leave this town. The farther away, the hazier it all gets. But me, I never left. I remember all of it. To the losers. We made an oath. I swear. If it isn't dead. If it ever comes back. We'll come back to it. We didn't stop it. Pennywise. The clown. We've had a chance to watch It and It Chapter 2. We know where the whole story went. If you hadn't before, if you were like me, who had no connection to It before this movie, these movies. Really? You haven't read the book before going into this? I haven't read the book. I've listened to part of the audiobook. Haven't read the and whole didn't, book, though. And you didn't see the miniseries that came out in the 90s, right? That is correct. I haven't seen that yet. So my, my, my some knowledge of It is basically what has seeped into popular culture. So, for instance, you know, the uh, Tim Curry as Pennywise, I've seen clips from his performance in some of the scenes. I know that uh, according to the miniseries, the first half is really good. The second half with the adults is really boring. Uh, I, I heard that he turns into a giant spider at some point and that in the book there is a cosmic turtle yeah there is i guess it it does dabble into there being a cosmic turtle the only thing that you really have to kind of remember from all that cosmology is really just the deadlights and what this thing that they're trying to kind of like destroy that kind of what you know pennywise and it is really okay let's get into this real, real quick what what was your history with it before seeing these movies I mean, I think to really kind of start it off, I, it really kind of just goes back to the author himself, Stephen King. Um, and I kind of just remember one of the authors I grew up with and kind of like latched onto was Stephen King, you know. And so my history with Stephen King has just been like that kind of adolescence, that, you know, passage into adulthood. You know, you started to read something that kind of felt supernatural, bizarre, and yet 
very adultish in its kind of writing. Um, and so I would kind of like read all of his books. I read, you know, uh, The Green Mile, uh, Cujo, Salem's Lot, Pet Cemetery, um, Carrie at the same time. Um, I also started reading it. Now, obviously, if anyone's kind of read some of Stephen King's books, they're pretty big. They can go on pretty long. Um, so I remember it. I think my history with the movie or even just the story was the miniseries at first. Um, and I kind of tried to sit through that. It was quite terrifying. Um, and then I tried to read the book. And that was strange. Um, obviously, there was a lot of liberties that were taken from Stephen King's original book that had to make it into the the 90s miniseries that they made just to make it suitable for primetime airing. But there was a lot of stuff I felt like they kind of left out and that they'd never captured. And I was kind of thought, and, and also if, you, if anyone's known about Stephen King, like for a lot of his movies that first came out, they were hits or misses. And so the 90s were just like, you know, it was a wonderful time and a weird time of just seeing a lot of these adaptations, you know, either succeed or fail. And so I always kind of thought to myself, Man, when are they going to do it right? When are they going to do Stephen King right? And yeah, so when you know the 2017 movie came out, I was very impressed. Yeah, so I again, being someone who didn't really have any connection to it as a, a, a property, or I haven't, I, I haven't even actually read very much Stephen King. I think I've read Pet Cemetery. That's the only book of his that I've read. Any connection I have to Stephen King is usually through his movies, whether that be. Pet Cemetery, Shawshank Redemption, uh, Stand By Me, you know, The Shining. And so I was kind of surprised at the scope of it. I'm not, and I'm talking about the uh, the first movie back in 2017. Um, I know people have made this comparison since then, but back then, this the first thing that came to me was that, oh, this is almost like the Lord of the Rings of horror movies. I was impressed by the kind of mythic way it was shot the beautiful way it was shot very theatrical the music had this sort of wonderment and it came in and out and it didn't just enhance the scenes it really pushed them forward and it's it's one of those it's one of those soundtracks that you notice but you notice for good reasons the scares were creative uh pennywise was you kind of felt like there was more to him but the way uh that bill skarsgård played him is it's frightening and intimidating but it's you feel like that there's more to him beyond what we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. There's a sinister underlayer that, you know, the this idea of Pennywise is just a facade that he puts up for whatever he is actually under that skin. Yeah, and my biggest problem with the first one might have been that just that because it was an ensemble film, I feel like some characters get uh, shorter shrift than others. You know, I, I I feel like we got to know Bill very well. We got to know Beverly very well. And then the rest of them kind of devolved into stereotypes and archetypes, so much so that I didn't remember their names the first time I saw it. In fact, the, uh, re-watching it this week, uh, before watching the, the second one, I still couldn't remember a lot of the kids' names at the end of the movie. Yeah, I think that's actually the one thing I kind of did like about this first movie is the kids, uh, the losers, like the ensemble for them. Just because I think, for me at least... They stood out a lot more than the kids from the first miniseries. Each one had their own personality or one of their own little quirks. You know, Eddie was the germaphobe, you know, nervous tick who just was paranoid about everything. You had Richie, who's the loudmouth, smart ass talking nerd who just, 
used his humor as a defense mechanism. You have uh, Ben, the, the fat little kid who's in love with Beverly and, you know, likes new kids on the block. So I don't know. I think this, the fact that they kind of had split this uh, story up into two parts where this first part really focused on the kids and developing their characters and what scares them and really tapping into their fears and personalities. I, th- I thought that was done very well. I think it's one thing that I think a lot of people liked about the first movie. Yeah, I was so again not knowing much about it going into into this movie, I just kind of presumed it's going to be oh it's about a killer clown hunting down these kids, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that oh no there's there's more to it. There's it can take on all these different forms. It can kind of change its environment, and it's a lot darker and more creative than that. Mm-hmm. And I really I really enjoyed that, and I felt like the. Um, the effects were, were 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 really well done. There's a lot of CGI, but it wasn't overblown and obvious. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the guy who uh, directed this movie, Andy Musiedi, um, is the guy who worked on the Mama movie. And so you think of all the practical effects and even just the jump scares that he does in that. Just a lot of the body distortion stuff. He's really yeah, good at. yeah. Like there's that one scene where Ben is being chased by a headless mummified kid, and uh, just the way the body moved in that was just. I don't know. It just had a character of its own. But yeah, that was actually one thing I thought that was just translated very well from the books is how each of the kids' fears were personal to them. And really, that's the reason why Pennywise, while he's a huge factor in all that, is really tapping into each of the kids' fears and really finding out what's scaring them, what's making them fear. Because as everyone knows, he feeds off of fear. He lives off of fear, and that's what he is hungry for, and that's what he's trying to thrive off of in the town of Derry is everybody's fears. Which is interesting because I, – I, and I think, I, I think I'm about to get, get into the, the second movie mm-hmm. here now because in the first movie, I feel like they did a really good job of tying in uh, individual scares and fears mm-hmm. with the kids yeah. and would frighten them in particular. So, you know, you have uh was it is it Eddie who's the the germaphobe? Yeah, Eddie the germaphobe who is a, there's obviously what Pennywise taps into is he's afraid of anything that is like just, you know, wrenched with disease and the one thing that he is constantly like bombarded with in his fears is this homeless like uh leper that has like no nose is just drooling with disease and lesions and just always coming after him and just slobbering over him. It's yeah. Yeah. And then, and then you have Ben who's been researching the history of dairy is suddenly being haunted by mm-hmm. the history of dairy basically. Yep. Exactly. Uh, and you have uh, Beverly who has all her abusive relationship with her, her dad. Yeah. And she's being haunted by that and mm-hmm. just the blood everywhere. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's like each individual kid has, has their own fears that Pennywise taps into. Mm-hmm. And then we get into it. Chapter two. And there's some of that is in there, uh, but when it is, it's kind of more blatantly obvious. Yeah. Um, and on the nose and just kind of in your face. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the times it isn't really there at all. Uh, Beverly comes back to her father's house looking for her dad. And mm-hmm. you think, oh, this will be really interesting to see mm-hmm. uh, what Pennywise is going to do here. And there's some tapping into the fact that she's still haunted by her dad, but the big scare is just basically like a big old creepy lady, <laughs> like a six, like a ten foot tall zombie lady with mouths all over her body and her throat. Yeah, and it's kind of like, oh, this is this is a more visual sort of thing, but I don't feel like thematically is tapping into very much. And I feel like that's that's kind of what a lot of this movie is. There's another scene where Eddie is being frightened by 
you know, the, the leper zombie guy, right? He's threatening his mom. But the whole scene is so over the top and crazy. And, you know, you know, you know this this guy has like this big rubbery tongue just sticking out of his mouth. It's flopping around. Yeah, and then barfing this tarish black goop all over him. Yeah, it's... so going back to my original thing about you know the the original it the the one from 2017 if that one is the lord of the rings of horror movies <laughs> it chapter two is the hobbit trilogy of horror movies where with the hobbit peter jackson kind of threw restraint to the wind and put in all these giant goofy effects written stuff that is just the silliest in your face stuff which is a lot of fun at times not nearly as 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 good and refined as the original lord of the rings I still had a blast with The Hobbit, and I had a blast with a lot of It Chapter 2 because of the over-the-topness of it. But it's not as good of a movie. Well, well, that's kind of weird when you were comparing it to like, oh, this is Lord of the Rings and this is the Hobbit version because it's like you like both versions for different reasons. Right, right. And I, I, know, I know that a lot of people really hate the Hobbit movies. I, I do enjoy that Peter Jackson goes over the top in full Peter Jackson a lot of the times. And I feel like that's what Andy Muschietti is doing here is, you know, they, they're, they're, there's a scene early on where they're eating fortune cookies. Oh, The yeah. fortune cookies are wrapped into, into like these just abominations and body horrors and all of these weird stuff. And I'm like, all right, I'm having fun with this. Yeah. It's not scary, but I'm having fun. I'm curious to see what they're going to do next. And that was how I felt like the scares in this movie were. I, I've, I've heard some people complaining that, oh, the first one was terrifying. This one wasn't uh, scary at all. In fact, people were laughing in the theater. And I felt bad because Andy Muschietti tried to make a scary movie, but instead people are laughing at it. And my thoughts like, no, he's trying to be funny with this. I don't feel like he's trying to be as scary. I think he's just having fun at this point. For 27 years... I dreamt of you. I craved you. I missed you. We need to finish it. For good. I've seen all of us die. It consumes us from the inside until we don't have a choice anymore. You lied. Maybe we can get into like our impressions or our thoughts like overall in the movie. I guess, Joe, I'll be the first to say it. I was kind of uh, disappointed with this movie in some way. I, at first, when I watched it, I was like, okay, I think I like it. I had a chance of watching it again a second time. And I was like, huh, there's a lot more stuff I don't like about this movie than what I do like. I think what was bothering me the most about this movie is where I was like, you know, the first movie, it's it's understandable. These are kids. Their fears are much more prevalent. They're much more stronger with them. And so the scares and the, you know, what is causing them to be afraid is much more visceral and much more stronger. This time around with them being older, it felt like the movie was doing the same kind of jump scares, the same kind of like house of horrors that the first movie presented, just repackaged for them as adults. And I don't know, I guess for some reason, I kind of was hoping there'd be a little bit more depth to this time around or a little bit more thought into these jump scares. But I don't know. It kind of felt like it was the same thing. And there was also parts where I felt it got a little too much. So kind of going into spoiler... Actually, should we even be worried about spoilers at this point? I'm pretty sure the people have seen the movie already. Yeah, I say, I say we just go ahead with a spoiler, spoiler warning from here on out. Okay, so like, there's several scenes in the very beginning, which I'm kind of glad they kept in. One of them is the opening scene 
uh, with the basically it's a gay bashing scene. This couple gets you know attacked by these four you know guys from Derry at this carnival, and one of them gets tossed over the bridge, and that's what brings Pennywise out again. Um, it's very much similar to the book, but I don't know. There's just something about how that was handled that just felt like it was too much. Um, and there's a similar scene later on when Beverly is leaving her um, abusive husband. And that scene kind of felt like it went overboard with you know this guy being an asshole and beating her. And I don't know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in the movie where I felt like it dragged out more than it should have. And we got the point. We got the message just trying to say, you don't have to go this far with it. And I think any Muschietti, kind of like what you're saying, Joe, He's obviously having fun with the scares and going all overboard and making it entertaining. But then there's just some stuff I felt like eh, you, you, you shouldn't handle it that way. See, I I kind of felt the opposite because I I am I I do like when movies go more over the top. Um, I'll, I'll get to my general impressions about the movie in a, in a minute because that, that'll sound like I'm, I'm contradicting myself all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm a fan of Sam Raimi, and I like movie. I, I like his movies because they go so overboard, and oh, I like yeah. it when movies are a bit much. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, there's a mm-hmm. even when it comes to the horrific sequences, mm-hmm. I think for a movie like this, it was fitting. It's at its heart, it is kind of this crazy cosmic movie about a, a killer clown. And when you have so many of the scares are going for these very in-your-face, over-the-top reactions, mm-hmm. I think it's only fitting that some of the more visceral, realistic stuff would go there, too. I mean, for me, it never got to the point where it was tasteless, and, and I never felt like, oh, man, they're really being exploitative. It fit the scene that it was in. Mm-hmm. Now, that that also comes into some of my complaints about the movie, though, too, is because because he goes for this this more in-your-face mm-hmm. uh, aesthetic, I felt like, especially watching it right after re-watching the first movie, it kind of clashed with the first movie. The first movie yeah. felt almost mystical, and it was shot with this 80s wonderment, and yeah. again, it, it felt like Lord of the Rings. It right. had this big scope to it. This one's shot more like a kind of a modern conventional movie with a lot more handheld stuff and a lot more just kind of boring shots. It, it, it was it was set up like like a normal modern day movie, which I guess fits because the other one was in the the 80s and this one's in present day. Um, but it made the movie kind of less interesting to me. The opening, I felt like the movie started off pretty strongly. I was curious to see where these kids had been the whole time. When, you know, now, now that they're grown up, what are they doing? What are they up to? Mm-hmm. And then once they actually reached Derry, the thing just dragged for the next hour for me. Mm-hmm. It it got repetitive, and yeah. I get the idea that like, oh, they have to get their tokens. But then we're just watching each person have their own version of the same scene. Yeah, where they go to a place, have a flashback to a scare when when they were kids flashback forward to a similar scare today get the token move on and we have to do that over and over and over again i feel like we only needed to have it done once or twice and then just breeze over the rest of them just you know we know that it that it happened but no the movie just 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 goes on for so long i feel like we're spinning our wheels and ultimately it doesn't make a difference because when you get to the end with the whole ritual of chewed which i was into that stuff i was into the cosmic stuff i wanted more of that but at the end they're just kind of like oh it didn't work all right we're gonna do something else that's basically the same thing as at the end of the first movie all right (laughs) yeah and i I guess like that was one thing i kind of felt the movie missed uh so in the book and what i saw the movie was trying to do with the whole token treasure hunt in the the second part what actually happens is when the kids all grow up and they all come back to Derry. 
they all forgot. They actually forget about dairy. They actually forget about what they went through as kids. And the whole token search is them being reminded of, yes, this was something that we suppressed in our memories. This is something that we tried to run away from. But the thing is, we have to come back and face it. Um, and one of the aspects I kind of felt like was missed, but it was tapped into some of the characters, which I did like. And that was this whole element of shame. Um, with Bill's character in particular, he is still riddled with shame that he wasn't able to be there to save Georgie. And now that Pennywise is back again, more kids are being preyed upon, more victims are being preyed to him. Uh, he meets this one kid who is hearing the same kind of voices, the same kind of chuckles, and he's trying to you know, warn this kid and get him almost kind of like in a way trying to redeem himself or even just amend for what he couldn't be there for Georgie. And almost I kind of wanted the movie or just like for all the characters to kind of go through that in some way, as opposed to just reliving their same fears, going through the same jump scares. Even Beverly, she doesn't, she kind of slightly admits this, but she's even dealing with her own version of shame, which is that she knows how each of her friends are going to die. She's seen it. When she saw the dead lights, she had an, a premonition of how they were going to die. And her kind of not telling them or keeping it secret from them is something maybe she even feels ashamed about. So I don't know. That was just something I kind of felt the movie kind of sidetracked from. It, it tapped a little bit into it, but it wasn't able to use it. And I felt like maybe that could have helped make the adult versions of the kids better, or maybe we could have focused a little bit more of them and less draggy as opposed to what they kind of did, which is let's bring back the younger cast and we'll re shoot new scenes with them, which surprisingly that actually cost a lot of money because the kids were older and they were taller. So they had to basically CGI them to look like their younger selves. again. Oh, oh, don't think I didn't notice. I didn't know about it ahead of time, but when they, when they went back to the flashbacks with the kids, my first thought was some of these kids have had CGI work done on them, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, um, the kid who plays Eddie, we've seen him in Stranger Things. He's sprouted. Uh, even like um, Eddie, he was in Shazam recently. He's a lot taller now. And them to kind of like just shoot these scenes again and expect us to believe like, oh, yeah, you totally can pass off as 13 years ago. You can totally see it. And I just thinking to myself, man, the money they could have saved if they didn't have to do that much CGI work. Now, maybe the memory wipe thing works in the book. I don't know. I haven't read the book. I really had a problem with it here because the end of the movie, it felt like everyone had to confront some personal part of themselves in order to defeat Pennywise. So a classic example is Bill having to confront his fear over uh, what happened with Georgie and his powerlessness. And it chapter one ends uh, towards the end of that one. There's a shot where he basically kills the image of Georgie that Pennywise puts in front of him to, to show that he has gotten over that regret and over that fear but now we're back here in, in chapter two back to square one all of a sudden he's struggling with that again all of a sudden the kids don't remember any of the arcs they went through in the first movie so we get to see them go through all of them all over again mm -hmm. just so that they can defeat pennywise in very in a very similar way all over again and it just kind of felt like oh this isn't a nut a next chapter in a story we're just retelling the first one in a slightly different way yeah it was very frustrating especially considering that the movie is almost three hours long i know and i kind of feel like i and so that's my biggest problem is i feel like in some way bringing back like these memories or these flashbacks for the kids it outshines the adult actors or the adult version of the losers 
And one thing I liked about the miniseries, kind of looking back on that, is how it dedicated enough time to them being adults for them to rebond, to kind of like just, you know, share that experience again of them being friends as adults. Whereas in this one, I, I couldn't feel it until like maybe it was like a couple of shots at the very end. Those were like the only moments I kind of felt like, oh, yeah, they feel like a group. The rest of the time, it's just each of them were a standalone. And that's something that the miniseries actually had more of was just they had that camaraderie. And so I don't know. I kind of feel like I, I agree with you, Joe. I was frustrated as well with them having to go back to square one and relive the same horrors and the same, same same personal struggles. Well, even the same set pieces. Like you know, James McAvoy wakes up in the same uh, water-filled basement that we had in It Chapter One, where he's confronted that apparition of Georgie and his younger self on the stairs. And I don't know. I kind of feel like maybe that was just them realizing, oh, this worked in It Chapter 1. Let's bring it back again in It Chapter 2. Audiences will love it. I've been kind of on the fence, more or less, for a lot of this movie. Because I did really, I did enjoy quite a bit of it. There are some set pieces that I had a lot of fun with. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, I like kind of the crazier stuff. And this movie delivered some really fun, crazy stuff. I thought this, I thought it was a very funny movie. And I felt like that was intentional. I mean, when Bowers um, comes back into the picture, that's entertaining oh, I, lo I, I love his scenes and I, I i bet you a lot of people hated his scenes and i get it but i love that i, I when, when when he shows up and he's in the insane asylum and he has the the, the same mullet i turned to my brother who was, i was watching the movie with and i said like he hasn't changed that mullet in the past 30 years or, or the scene where he actually encounters the losers again and he confronts Eddie in the bathroom and Eddie's like, dude, get rid of the mullet. Okay. Yeah. It's not the eighties anymore. Yeah. So the movie, the movie's aware of how silly it is. And you know, this, this actor playing Henry is just having fun with it. And oh, I enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah. I think that's those parts, especially, um, I feel like the movie was stronger. It's like when it's aware that this is supposed to be a, a silly jump scare scene and we're going to have fun with them. We're going to have campy with it. It's good. I think the scene sometimes when it tries to be much more adult and much more serious, it goes either a little too far or too much or repetitive. Well, and it, an example of a couple of those, those those more serious scenes that I really had a problem with was uh, one, I think it was about halfway through, where Bill and Beverly share a kiss at one point. Oh, yeah. They introduced to the love triangle again. Right, exactly. Now – Taking away the fact that I just I, I I don't like love triangles in general unless they're handled very well, which I didn't feel like it was handled great in this one, but whatever. Look, I get that Beverly was in, is 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 in a very toxic relationship, mm -hmm. right? There's nothing to imply imply really that the Bill isn't in a happy marriage with his wife. Mm -hmm. So when they played off that 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 kiss scene where he's like, "Oh, I'm kind of into you again," in the back of my mind, I'm like. So is there problems in his marriage that we just haven't seen yeah. yet? Because the the movie didn't play it off as a, oh, this is a mistake scene or anything like that. It played it off as kind of like a sweet little moment, even though I know that the point was that she's going to get together with Ben in, in, in the long run. Yeah. But the movie kind of played it with this, you know, you know, this nice little music and this nice little romantic moment. I'm like, I don't know. This seems weird just in the context of where these, these characters have come from and where they are now. Yeah, exactly. And I, I felt the same way. And I don't know. I think the two actors I felt the sorriest for was James McAvoy and Jessica Castian. I feel like as talented actors as they are, they're just given – um, their versions of the characters just were not given enough depth or interesting things to do on their own. 
compared to everyone else. I felt like the guys who, you know, Bill Harder, who's playing the older version of Richie, James Rainstone, who's playing like the older version of Eddie, they have enough depth, they have enough like just character development to just kind of like, okay, they can be interesting on their own. Whereas with those two, James and Jessica, I felt like they're not given enough material here and they're just kind of being forced into this love triangle and, oh, I got to save this kid because I got to save Georgie all over again is just almost like a cop-out, I kind of felt like. Yeah, and the the one thing, though, that really kind of left a bad taste in my mouth was the way they dealt with Stanley's death at the end of the movie. Okay. So early on in the movie, Stanley commits suicide when he realizes that they're going to... They're, they're being called back to Derry to confront it again, and he's too frightened to do it. So uh, so he decides to kill himself as opposed to let his friends down. It's, it's a really sad moment, and uh, we, we, we kind of keep coming back to it in, uh, in very sad, touching, tragic ways. In small doses, was, yeah. Right. But then at the end of the movie, I, 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 I feel like the movie was... So, so, so you find out that, that before he died, he sent out uh, basically a suicide note to all of his friends to explain why he did what he did. I, 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 think, I, th- I think they're trying not to give... Stanley disservice basically because they realize that he wasn't in the movie and he died early on. So the movie is trying to give him his moment, which I understand. At the same time, it really felt icky to me in that it felt like the movie was trying to make his act a secretly heroic moment for a cowardly person, which is very unhealthy and I have many problems with. Um, and I, I, I'm sure that wasn't the intent, but that's what it came off as in that moment of, oh, look at, look, look at, he, look at, he, he killed himself for good reasons. See, and I'm like, it's like, no, this is not where we should be going with this. No, I think actually, uh, Joe, I think you kind of missed it. So a big part of, you know, with Stanley's death is that he let his own fear take hold of him. And that's kind of like why he succumbed to suicide. And I think what he was saying in his letter is, what I'm doing is not heroic, but I know you guys were always stronger. You guys are the strongest ones, and you will find a way to make it out of this. And I don't think it's trying to justify or even just to make it seem like his suicide was glorified or even just heroic, but he's trying to say, you guys have a chance of defeating this more than I can. I'm not strong enough. He's just admittedly just admitting, I'm the weaker one, and I don't think I can have what it takes to go back and face my own fears. Well, right, but the, but the 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 tone at the end of the movie isn't that oh I was too cowardly so I I did a cowardly thing. The the tone at the end was I knew I was too cowardly mm-hmm. and I knew I couldn't break my promise so I decided to quote unquote this is and we took my my piece off the table or took 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 myself off the board. It does come off as a justification for what he's doing, basically, because he's saying that if I'm there with you, we'll lose because I'm too cowardly. But if I'm alive and not there with you, we're going to lose because you won't be as strong because I've broken my promise and I'm still alive. So I'm just going to take myself off the table. And uh, I know it's not a great thing, but this is what I have to do for you guys. Yeah. And it didn't play very well to me. Yeah. And, and honestly, that comes also in just Stephen King's writing as well. I kind of trying to remember, I think that's actually how the book ended as well, is he, he sent out a letter like that. And, you know, knowing Andy Muschietti, he said he tried to do his best to bring the essence of it to the screen. And this is kind of just a faction of that. And 
not saying it's right either, but it's kind of what comes off in the book. So all that is to say is that is that it was a movie I was kind of mixed on. I enjoyed a lot of things about it. I didn't enjoy a lot of things about it, and that just kind of left me with a sour taste in my mouth going out of the movie. So I think coming out of the movie. I was kind of so-so on it, and in the couple of days it's been since I've seen the movie, I think I've really soured on it more than uh, than I was coming out of it initially. So yeah, I don't think I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of it. Chapter two, it chapter one though is fantastic. Yeah, and I think that what made and that, and I'm kind of in the same boat. I actually feel like it chapter one is fantastic. I mean, there's a reason why it's the highest grossing thriller horror movie of all time. Uh, it's because like it's focused, it's staying on the kids. And you're right, Joe, there is this kind of magical nostalgia to it where we're just taking back to 1989. And yeah, you're witnessing something that's a bit more epic in scale than most horror thriller movies with this kind of tale that this, you know, Stephen King is bringing into it. And you're hoping that chapter two will live up to it. And <clears throat> I'm not sure if it's because we had such high expectations for a chapter two that we were expecting that much out of it. But maybe that's also kind of just what, movie kind of just falls short of is just our expectations and the fulfillment of that so it's kind of hard to say i'm not i think as i sit on it i'm a little bit more disheartened that the adults didn't have a lot more material or have a lot more scenes where we got to see them bond as the losers again and just have that time to them as opposed to kind of like what the movie did which is a lot more flashbacks a lot more of revisiting the same um house of horrors that we saw the kids go through in the first one. It's like, this could have been a chance for us to let them experience new things or just even like deal with it as adults. So I don't know. Um, and not saying it doesn't, you know, do a good job in some areas. I think the cast is really good. I think there's some good scenes and, uh, you know, I think for just trying to wrap up on the second part, it was good. I just feel like maybe it could have been shorter. So, do you do you think that these movies are going to lead to uh, kind of a resurgence of Stephen King? I mean, I think we're already kind of seeing it. I mean, you look at right now what's kind of going on. I mean, uh, Shudder is now doing their own version of Creep Show. Uh, we've had the show Castle Rock, which is pretty much kind of an interesting fan fiction take of all the Stephen King characters, kind of like combined into one uh, series or storyline. And even now, we're getting a uh, Warner Brothers producing Doctor Sleep, which is kind of like a continuation story of The Shining. So I, we're already kind of seeing it. And I think just because of the success of It, um, I think Hollywood is definitely noticing there's a place again for Stephen King. People still love Stephen King. I mean, it, it's one of the reasons I think like a lot of his movies will still bring in audiences or even just make money is we're going to have that for quite a while. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, yeah, I think I, th I think the Stephen King research started actually a few years ago and I think we're well in the middle of it. I mean, I mean, hell, even just I think it was earlier today Netflix released a trailer for an adaptation of a Stephen King novella or short story called In the Tall Grass. Oh yeah, In the Tall Grass. Eh? So they so they're really digging into some of the more obscure Stephen King stories that people haven't really seen or or, or read or really know know that much about. Uh, to really mine it for all it's worth right now. So I I wouldn't be surprised to see in the next couple of years to see the Stephen King train slowly kind of slow down, basically. Um, I, I, I feel like now now that it is over, we're going to kind of peter out once we once we run out of new material. But I mean, I, I, still, I still, think, still think we got like another year or two of 
tons of Stephen King movies. Yeah, and I think what makes it work nowadays um, compared to when, you know, I guess material was trying to first be released back in the day is television wasn't as high in production or just high in the consumer end as it is today. I think with things like Netflix, things like Amazon Prime, there's a higher demand and a higher audience that just wants this very layered, very character-driven content. And that's one thing Stephen King's work has always just had is just a lot of that world building, a lot of just those bizarre scenarios and colorful characters. And I think that's what lends itself really well to things like Netflix, Shudder, as well as like if Amazon decides to pick one of these properties up, they could go in that direction again. Um, I think maybe the chance of a cinematic universe, we'll have to see. It might be a little bit harder, but I think you're right, Joe. I think like as far as like the, um, the pinnacle of this resurgence, I think we've witnessed it with it chapter one and at chapter two. I don't think it'll get any higher than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there was certainly a wave of Stephen King movies in the uh, the eighties. Now we're seeing it again. So who knows? Maybe twenty years from now there'll be another one. Yeah. Well, in the nineties there's one as well. So and the early two thousands, I guess when miniseries were becoming popular again. So yeah, they'll come in waves. So anyway, before we finish up, is there anything else you have to say? Um, I was going to actually ask you, what are your thoughts for Dr. Sleep uh, coming out? Do we have to get into the fact that I'm not a Mike Flanagan fan? You're not a Mike Flanagan fan? <laughs> I, I, I have yet to really like any of his movies, so I'm not terribly excited for Dr. Sleep, even though I, I love uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting is that it feels like this movie is, because the book is actually you know going off the continuation of the Stephen King book. Which, funny enough for that one, the hotel burns down, whereas in the Stanley Kubrick version, it just, you know, obviously it shuts down. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they adapt that story to fit more in just the cinematic Kubrick version of The Shining. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll watch it just just again. I, I don't know. I'm not a fan of Mike Flanagan's style. It comes off as a little bit pretentious to me at times. Uh and even when he's not being quote unquote pretentious, it's um there's a lapse of logic in a lot of his movies, like like in Hush. I was mm-hmm. screaming at the movie at, at at the screen during a lot of Hush, and mm-hmm. just because I was like, why are you why are you doing that? But not in in a good way. It wasn't like don't go through that door. It was more like this 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 wouldn't happen. I know. I keep forgetting he did Hush. <laughs> um. So I don't know. I know that he's a really hot director right now. I haven't seen The Haunting of Hill House to be fair, so I I do need to check that out. Oh, you haven't? That, oh, that's that, a. That, that, Okay, so actually, I will say that has actually been a very good show. That's what everyone says, and I really need to check it out. No, and I think that's kind of maybe why I see maybe Stephen King actually doing well is actually in these like shorter mini series versions of his content, or even just like in shows and serials. So I I don't know. I think Mike Flanagan, if if I forget that he was kind of part of that, so I mean that was done very well. Um, I think a lot of people like really praise that one. So maybe that's the reason why he was able to pick up Doctor Sleep. So, yeah, so we'll see. I, cer- I certainly hope it's good. Um, it, it looks interesting. I like seeing Ewan, Ewan McGregor get work, and I love The Shining. So mm-hmm. here's hoping. Yeah, I don't know. This kind of just makes me want to go back and revisit all the old Stephen King like classics, like Sleepwalkers. <laughs> I'm gonna keep putting <laughs> that movie in one, one day. <laughs> I'm gonna keep wedging that in, Joe, until you and I watch it. One day we'll get to it. <laughs> one day anyway uh that has been it for this episode this very stephen king episode of the film illiterates podcast nate where can people find you oh well you can find me here at film illiterates doing these podcasts with joe and alex sadly alex was not able to join us tonight he got 
scared of clowns. So it takes one to know one. I guess it does. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram uh, at Nathan underscore stone underscore films. Um, and hopefully you might see me on that as well as uh, Star Lord. So you shall see. Joe, what about you? Yeah, you can find me uh, twitter.com slash film literates uh, and letterboxd.com slash film underscore illiterate where you can find my movie watching habits and see my terrible terrible taste in movies uh otherwise you can find us here at filmliterates.com where we have all new episodes of our podcast and videos from time to time mm-hmm. i actually was kind of looking here on uh imdb and they have an article on it chapter two it's like how it chapter two is a three-hour monster piece <laughs> i don't know how to take monster piece but it could be either disaster or a masterpiece. So yeah, you'll to each his own. Anyway, everyone, keep watching movies and keep it easy.